The inquiry leads us to that source, at once the essence of genius, of virtue, and of life, which we call spontaneity or instinct. There's this strange thing that I think is intuition, where I feel like I'm close to something good, that I'm close to some kind of expression, that if I expressed it, it would make something clearer or more beautiful or comforting or unsettling in a good way. And um, the only way to get closer to that feeling is by being courageous and being willing to fail. Hi, everyone. Today, Claire and I will talk about Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, and a little bit about his essay, Compensation. Since we read a lot from these essays themselves, I'm going to skip the quote of the day, but after our chat, I will be reading a poem, one of my favorite poems, by Emerson himself for the poem of the day. So without further ado, let's go right into that chat with me and Claire. So, Claire Agerbrand, author, painter, half-marathon runner, genius... Uh, well. True or false? To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Yes. I'm asking you as an authority. It's one kind of genius. To fully trust your own soul, your own heart and, and mind, and to respect the intuitions that we have, the thoughts we have. For example, with abstract art, for example, I think a lot of the time we're so moved, but we're not sure why. And I think in those instances, it's because the artist trusted that the things that moved him or her are things that will also apply to every other human being. If you access your own humanity, you will be able to reach others, other people's humanities. Um, this is the definition of genius, you think? Why is it so rare? It's rare because we start to depend on the teachings that we grew up with. We start to depend on the thoughts of other people, spiritual leaders or politicians or even just teachers, certain books that we love. Once we give up our agency and that power we have within us to think freely and on our own and to come up with new ideas for ourselves, that's when I'm sure genius is not at all involved. But is this even possible? I mean, for example, if I read a poet whom I really, really love, whose work I adore and wish I could write like, is it possible to attain a mental state in which I'm not comparing myself to this poet well, and consistently finding myself wanting? How do you not constantly tell yourself, well, this isn't as good as? You probably do a lot of the time tell yourself that, but all you can do is trust that the thing that you are currently passionate about is worthwhile, that it has a place in the world. I mean, I totally believe this point. Emerson goes on to say, speak your latent conviction and it shall be the universal sense. That mm -hmm. makes total sense to me. If you, if you write from your own humanness, then yes. other humans will respond to you because there's a universal humanity. And that exactly. makes sense to me. If you write from it or if you paint from it, sing from it, then it doesn't even matter if it's, you know, say, David Lynch. I connect with him in so many ways, even though some of his movies are... <laughs> well, but why can't everyone do this? Back to my question. We're, we're, 
We're only about three sentences into what I think is, you know, one of my favorite pieces of writing ever. I fully drunk the Emerson Kool-Aid. It doesn't really get better than this for me. And I did the ultimate act of reverence, and that is to Google Emerson t-shirts. <laughs> so we're going to have to slightly do a better job pacing ourselves here, but I, I, this is a crucial point. It's central to Emersonian thought, to believe your own thought. To believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Why aren't all works of art genius? Well, of course it gets complicated. There's also... Not, I mean, not everyone's David Lynch. Talent has to be involved. <laughs> if you take somebody who already has a talent, say, for example, and then you add confidence and authority in that self-reliance that Emerson speaks of, then the soul knows no limits. Confidence. Yeah, confidence that what moves you is important. Not important as in you are important, but that there is something there that expresses a human truth. Yeah, you're onto something. I mean, not every David Lynch movie is good. Not every Emerson essay is good. Not None of them are really bad, but you know what I mean. There mm -hmm. are some outright horrible frost bombs, for example. So yeah. my point there is to simply say that confidence in your own thought necessitates also understanding that many of those thoughts will fail. Yes. Right? Well, yeah. It's not that I would know exactly or I've ever achieved this, but... The greatest works of art have an immediate authority about them. It's even hard to describe what that sense of, of authority even means, but... Well, one of our favorite books, Adelbert Stifter's novel, Nachsummer, hmm. has this wonderful little bit where they describe a flower blossoming in the desert. They they bloom for themselves in that in that sense they're self reliant. This is this is the impression I get. You know, there's David Lynch and Bob Dylan, who seem to be making movies for themselves, mm -hmm. and writing songs for themselves, nonsense out of their own brain that only they understand, kind of thing. And then there are their imitators who are clearly trying to be beautiful and get attention mm. and be interesting. Emerson goes on here. Um, isn't this wonderful? Familiar as the voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they set at naught books and traditions, and spoke not what men, but what they thought. Mm -hmm. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought, because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> so beautiful. It's beautiful and, yeah, heartbreaking too. We're capable of having such beautiful thoughts and expressing these thoughts, but then because we don't trust ourselves enough, we let other people do it. And, of course, we're not all able to. Well, it's bittersweet. I think we value great works because they are pieces of us. Yeah. You know what I mean? We hear some Bach prelude and we think, there's a bit of me in that. Yes. Uh, alienated majesty. You know, it's like, that. that yes. I am that. That is me. I need that. Mm. I know. This is why I think a lot of, I think I, I was Paul McCartney was saying that it was so weird when it's really strange when people, you know, meet him and they say, this song means so much to me because this and this happened. But it was his song and it was about his experience. But millions of people. Uh, my point is that um, we make art ours. It belongs to everyone who 
is human. Is human. God, Emerson says, God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. If there is something great out there, if there is inspiration, if there is beauty that could be expressed, then it's not going to come through me unless I boldly seize the opportunity and speak or write or paint or sing whatever I feel I need to. But why is courage necessary? What makes it so hard? It takes courage to go against the grain. And sadly, trusting our minds and our feelings is actually going against the grain quite a bit because we're all so used to repeating the teachings of others. This is what Emerson says. He says, there are voices which we hear in solitude, you know, our own inner self, the voice of our own inner self, but this voice grows faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. Society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Yes, against individuality. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. So, I mean, I'm not one of those people that likes this idea that art has to be quote-unquote original or genre-destroying or boundary-pushing. You know, there's nothing like a great sonnet written in the year 2021. Right, but it can be something as simple as a cliché. That is the problem Emerson talks about. Defying cliché? Defying cliché, yeah. Yeah. Following clichés is lazy thinking, and that, I think, is his main point. He cannot be a lazy thinker and just borrow everybody else's thoughts. So it takes courage to do that hard work. It is hard work. It is, yeah. But also, I think, going back to the failed songs or the failed poems, I mean, if you... If you read all of Robert Frost, for example, or Whitman or Dickinson, I think one of the most obvious lessons is that they're only batting about, you know, three out of ten. <laughs> Failed sports metaphor. I don't know. It's out of a thousand, I think. I don't know what this thing is. Three hundred? The point it is took me a while to realize what you were talking about. Sports, yeah. Says the person who just ran a half marathon. He did a sports thing. I did. Do you want to interrupt our conversation and summarize your experience in a sentence or two really i don't know do you oh i guess if you're asking about it three days ago yeah i i'm an extreme introvert but i do have to say that there was a really cool moment when we started where i saw like hundreds of runners in front of me and behind me there were thousands of participants but um running in provo canyon and it was completely biblical (laughs) it's a beautiful thing to see especially after being quarantined and after coronavirus Mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes i like people and that's what i like about emerson he really likes he loves people yes but it was good to see you out there running i took the kids out there i sat on the road waved at you very hot yeah it was really too hot probably um what point was i trying to make i was trying to make the point that um yeah you were saying it's it's difficult god will not have his work made manifest by cowards um, it's not easy to defy cliché. It's not easy to find. It's not easy to write a sonnet. It's not easy to paint a painting. Apprenticeship, doing the work of apprenticeship, is a commitment of time and effort. But I think another reason that it takes courage is because to read the collected works of Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, any great poet, really Wordsworth, my favorite, is to see people mostly failing. Yeah. So that that's not easy. Yeah, you can have self-reliance and fail. <laughs> you do. I mean, it's not optional. It's, yes. You, that's part of the process. Every great poem trails a string of failed poems. 
So mm. to say to yourself, I will let myself fail, you know, that's not easy. Yes. Um, this is a great paragraph. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protected corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty effort, and advancing on chaos and the dark. <laughs> this is wow. so amazing. This is what your point that he loves humans. It's like, yeah. we don't, to say to yourself, well, I'm not Shakespeare, I'm a kid in a corner at the kid's table. Yeah, this is where the courage comes How in. How dare we say that to ourselves? Mm-hmm. It's a form of self-abuse, you know what I mean? We are, in Emerson's words, guides, redeemers, benefactors, obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos in the dark. The sun rises for us the same way it rose for Shakespeare. I know. He's not saying only if you're Shakespeare is it worth um, respecting and honoring your your mind. We are now men. He's a human and so are you. Um, It's extremely empowering. (laughs) It's so wonderful. I shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls me. I would ride on the lintels of the doorpost, whim. I hope it is somewhat better than whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. This is like the center of my spiritual slash aesthetic life, really. I do like it. I feel like he is being funny right here. I don't think he's completely serious. (laughs) uh, Well, both. I mean, they're not... Mutually exclusive, I think it's like... He's probably saying, when genius calls me, when I get a good idea, when I feel like I'm close to some kind of expression that is meaningful, then it's worth pretty much everything. It's it's worth it's worth pursuing. It's worth pursuing. And this shunning father and mother, that sounds harsh, but I think it, you know this, these are stand-ins for culture or society or authority figures that tell you, no, that won't work, or don't do that, or mm. that's not for you. You know what I mean? Sometimes I ask, sometimes... Maybe tradition. Yeah, tradition. I, I get this idea for a poem, and I think, well, I don't know, X person that I know wouldn't write that kind of poem and says that kind of poem is dumb. But there's something in me that is calling me towards it. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of whim that I have to follow. Mm-hmm. So Emerson's advice is to put those voices away mm. and to pursue that idea. And I love this. I hope it is somewhat better than whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. So I could debate for a few days, will it really work out if I pursue this? Maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe it isn't. What will it be like? Is it a risk worth taking? Just do it. And you'll find out. Yeah. I'll find out if it's a, if it's a, if it's a dumb poem, I'll find out. If it worked out, I'll find that out too. But you can't spend the day in explanation. Just do it. Yeah, there's a great expansion, expansiveness to this. Like everything could be possible. Mm-hmm. You you never know. You know, could be a translation of whim. You never know. Right. And it's worth going against tradition or the grain to yeah. find out. Whim is such a great word. If, if there's even a... Because it's lighthearted. It doesn't take itself seriously. Like you say, he's kind of joking, but... I think this is as serious as it gets. I know. I'm picturing him like 
maybe having a conversation or being in the company of his family, and then he has an idea for a poem. And maybe, maybe he, some of his family members have accused him of、uh, pursuing whims, whimsical things, maybe. But he knows that there's something in him that has to be expressed. Yeah. And so you know, he hopes it's better than whim, but like I keep saying, just go read Robert Frost. I mean, he, like a dog following every scent, some of them led to interesting quarries, some of them didn't. Many of them didn't.、Mm-hmm. Whim leads you to places, and you can't predict in advance which of those places will be lasting and productive, and which won't. And so, probably all great things started with whim. I think so. Yeah. This, I love that. I just can't express to you what this means to me. I, it it deelevates, it deescalates the pressure because it's like, oh no, this isn't Hamlet, you know. But it's like, well, maybe on the day, maybe on the day Shakespeare started Hamlet, Hamlet wasn't Hamlet. And don't forget, Shakespeare also wrote, you know, the Merry Wives of Windsor and you know,、um, Comedy of Errors. So he seemed to be Shakespeare seemed to be willing to obey that whim、mm. as well. And it took courage in his case too. Yeah, Emerson decries the trait of predictability. He says, "If I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. I hear a preacher announce for his text and topic the expediency of one of the institutions of his church. Do I not know beforehand that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word? Do I not know that with all his ostentation of examining the grounds of the institution, he will do no such thing?" Do I not know that he has pledged himself not to look but at one side, the permitted side, not as a man but as a parish minister? He is a retained attorney, and these heirs of the bench are the emptiest affectation. While most men have bound their eyes with one or another handkerchief, and attached themselves to some one of these communities of opinion, this conformity makes them not false in a few particulars, authors of a few lies, but false in all particulars. Their every truth is not quite true. Their two is not the real two. Therefore, not the real four. That is so Wallace Stevens. <laughs> How great is that? Wow. But also, in addition, you know those people who have proven themselves to be incapable of straying from the party line, whether that's a political party, a religious、mm. party, any kind of dogmatic institutional、mm. party. You see them locked inflexibly into this, and therefore, when they say something that you know is true, it's tainted. It's tainted truth. It's truth, but it's still unreliable. Their two is not two. It's not the real two.、Mm. It's just is so good. That's good. So, a person, a trustworthy person, is a person who will stray and contradict themselves and piss、admit. people off and admit that、yeah. they were wrong and and have enemies in multiple camps and friends in multiple camps and. And require that thoughts always should be fresh. I can't express how wonderful this is. He gives Emerson.、Uh, Emerson gives Whitman the famous、um, dictum about contradiction. This is what Emerson says: Suppose you should contradict yourself. What then? It seems to be a rule of wisdom never to rely on your memory alone, scarcely even in acts of pure memory, but to bring the past for a judgment into the thousand-eyed present and live ever in a new day. And then he says, "Leave your theory as Joseph his coat in the hand of the harlot, and flee." Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood, a critic might say. And then Emerson says, "Well, is that so bad to be misunderstood?" 
Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. Now, he's not inviting us necessarily to compare ourselves with these figures, but on the other hand, he is. We only limit our own potential, and it's the fear of appearing contradictory or insane (laughs) (laughs) that keeps us from being as great as we could be, each of us. That's why usually the extremely popular music or, yeah, for example, music is always the worst kind because um, it follows certain rules that people are comfortable with and there's very little, yeah, it's it's all about following a formula and that's that's where self-reliance completely disappears and anything interesting is just kind of dead, right? Because we can tell it's not being spoken by a human, but by a, an aggregation machine. So, but why is it so popular? Why do people like formulas so much? I can't answer that. I, it's comforting? <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't know. People are afraid? The waves start billowing around my head, and I feel <laughs> like I'm about to drown. It's too out of my depth. Um, no, you know, I just brought it up because of the, you know, all the great thinkers are misunderstood. Well, Shakespeare was immensely popular. But probably misunderstood, too. This, okay, I don't want to bring up Kurt Cobain now after you mentioned Shakespeare, but he was extremely disturbed by who his audience was. They were not the kind of people he wanted <laughs> as his audience. You know, like the the same guys who made his life miserable in high school or... <laughs> bullies and right right he wanted a different audience so in a way he was misunderstood you know what i'm saying i do know what you're saying so i almost wonder if shakespeare was also misunderstood and people maybe didn't care so much about the deeper meanings as some of the more superficial pleasures well i can't begin to speculate on what those groundlings in the globe were thinking watching hamlet (laughs) what experience that was for them I have no idea. They were there for the jokes. <laughs> Pretty good jokes. Um, I think. Yeah, good jokes. But <laughs> they must have seen what we see to some degree. They must have. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept going back. Maybe we've already answered this question, but what is aesthetic intuition and how is it developed? Let me read you this little chunk and then... Emerson says, The magnetism which all original action exerts is explained when we inquire the reason of self-trust. Who is the trustee? What is the aboriginal self on which a universal reliance may be grounded? What is the nature and power of that science-baffling star without parallax, without calculable elements, which shoots a ray of beauty even into trivial and impure actions? The inquiry leads us to that source, at once the essence of genius, of virtue, and of life, which we call spontaneity or instinct. We denote this primary wisdom as intuition whilst all latter teachings are tuitions. There's this strange thing that I think is intuition, where I feel like I'm close to something good. I know I'm being very general, but that I'm close to some kind of expression that if I expressed it, it would make something clearer or more beautiful or comforting or unsettling in a good way. And um, the only way to get closer to that feeling is by being courageous and being willing to fail in trying to express it in whichever way 
you usually express things. <laughs> but is it is it inborn? Is it trained? Do you nurture this? Does it grow? I'm sure it's inborn. I'm sure, I'm sure we all have it. Um, but in embryo, is it is it inborn in its fully ripened state? Well, I don't know. I'm asking you because I think for our most of our marriage until maybe recently, you've been the standard bearer for intuition. You've been more Emersonian, pretty much, for, for our entire marriage. I used to, I used to condescendingly and quite arrogantly scorn this idea of artistic intuition. I mean, this hasn't <laughs> been a source of conflict, but it, we have been the kind of classical versus romantic. I've always believed in apprenticeship, rules, yeah. practice, order. And I've come to also really value those things. I think, in fact, um, one of the greatest ways to access intuition is by having a routine. If you don't put yourself in the way of happy accidents, <laughs> uh, they're not going to happen. Yeah, I early on and for a long time thought intuition was hipster nonsense, mumbo jumbo. It, it's, yeah. it, it means nothing, and it's well, what very, artists say when they want to sound cool. It's very few good definitions. I I don't think I've ever read like a one that made a lot of sense. I mean, is it the subconscious? I have no idea. I don't know. And so I always hid. I didn't know. I don't know if I knew I was hiding, but I guess I was hiding behind this classical idea of, yes, polished order, a craft that can be learned without intuition, that great good art has rules, ratios, proportions. Mm -hmm. And if you learn these ratios and proportions, you can make great art. There is this underbelly. There is this dark realm. There is this foggy, primal, womb-like forest out of which I think the best ideas burble and crawl and lurch. And they are what makes art great. I think so. It's that foggy, whatever, all that stuff is you just said. Well, <laughs> burble, gerble. Well, yeah. What, what words have been called? <laughs> you know, the subconscious is maybe the, the latest word for it. Hmm. Um, I don't know if a purely kind of classical art could last. This is Nietzsche's Dionysian Apollonian. There's Apollo, this god of like rigor and order, and then Dionysus, this kind of god of frenzy. And Nietzsche says that in, in classical Greek tragedy, and I think by extension in all sublime art, I mean, piece of art can be more Apollonian than Dionysian, more classical or more romantic. But not but just I, one. Well, they can be mostly one, but mm -hmm. I think Nietzsche's argument is that like the best, if you if you look at the best works of art, you know, Ode to Joy or Hamlet or Greek tragedy or the best paintings, that they're, they're going to have found a kind of yin and yang, a kind of blend of both. Mm -hmm. Frenzy has been tamed, yeah. but not too tamed, so that it's not frenzy anymore. And we've always been slightly, you've always been more frenzy, I suppose, and I've always been more stale. <sighs> <laughs> routine routinized yeah. i've come fully not fully i think you know nietzsche is right in his insistence on this blend but my scorn of my scorn of intuition has faded i i now fully embrace this element of mystery that's good but i still find myself asking what, what is this mystery? what are its rules I know. you know what i mean so that that aspect of me hasn't quite left. Okay, should we keep going? Maybe the only rule that must exist for it that I can think of is that you can't... Uh, what is that Keats says about negative capability? Yeah, you can't know. You can't insist on knowing. Yeah, 
What is that? What is it exactly? He says, I forget. No you know, irritable reaching after facts right. or truths and. I love that about people. I love that there's not a single person you can fully understand. It's to me that's extremely aesthetically pleasing and comforting. It's funny that you bring up David Lynch. You know, if you watch Twin Peaks, which we're both quite rabid fans of, or a movie like Mulholland Drive comes to mind, he's obsessed with this type of shot that is from the point of view of a car and it's traveling down a road. Winding quite roads. Windy, which is important that it's windy. Mm-hmm. Empty and dark road. Yes. And the headlights give a certain amount of illumination. You can see a certain ways, but... And some of these shots will last and last and last for longer than you kind of want them to, for longer than are, is comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's just this car going into the darkness. And a, this is a great kind of metaphor or image of, among other things, I think the artistic process. Um, if there is a rule for developing intuition, it's, I think, not that I would know, of course, but this is me speculating, it would be learning how to be okay on that road. It's limited vision. Okay, I'm going into the dark. I'm going into the dark. This is scary, but... Here we go, here we go. You know, not insisting, as you say, Keats, that mm-hmm. everything is illuminated. Right. Because if you go only where things are illuminated, you're not going to bring back anything that is interesting or new or surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, he does have that wonderful quote about um, ideas are like fish. The deeper you go, the bigger oh, does, and yeah. more beautiful the fish are. Emerson says that to imitate is death. Which is a hard pill for me to swallow. That's how I learned. That's how I still write poetry. And that's how I base my poetry classes. That's my main method of instruction is imitation. I think he really likes hyperbole. Well, read this little bit about the roses and we can talk about imitation and whether or not we are justified in having a bone to pick with him. Okay. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time to them. They are simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. Before a leaf bud has burst, its whole life acts. In the full-blown flower, there is no more. In the leafless root, there is no less. Its nature is satisfied, and it satisfies nature, in all moments alike. But man postpones or remembers. He does not live in the present, but with reverted eye laments the past, or heedless of the riches that surround him, stands on tiptoe to foresee the future. He cannot be happy and strong until he too lives with nature in the present, above time. There's a lot there. Emerson also earlier says, is the acorn better than the oak, which is its fullness and completion? Is the parent better than the child into whom he has cast his ripened being? Whence then this worship of the past? Mm. I slightly prickle at these questions. Whence then this worship of the past? I mean... Well, because that's where we learn. But I think I think he's just showing us here in practice what it could look like to be self-reliant. You know, because I'm sure there's no way that he rejects texts of the past. You know what I mean? No, he swallowed Plato whole. Exactly. You know what I mean? And Shakespeare. Exactly. And the so Bhagavad Gita. Exactly. There's no way he doesn't like great literature of the past. And he is this acorn business. It's like, well, Mr. Emerson, you are... An acorn whose root is Plato. So, it, am I? Emerson to me is God. So I'm not. <laughs> I'm I think not he likes exaggerating to, for like it's like his style. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. So, what is the? 
if I'm not supposed to take him at his hyperbolic literal truth, what is the spirit of the argument that is imitation bad? Should we not learn from models? Imitation only is bad when you're not involving your brain. That's again back to the cliches, back to lazy thinking, back to f- repeating mantras or formulas and teachings of other people only. But um, I think influence is a word that I like more and that he probably would agree more. I mean, the with. roses that he talks about are the products of the DNA of their... Yeah. You know what I mean? So when right. he says these roses under my window make no reference to the roses, to former roses, like, well, yeah, they do. In what way is he right? He must. Uh, he's way smarter than me, so he must be right. It's, like, it's an interesting analogy because you can't. If you take it too far, it's like, yeah, well, the rose is is actually unfortunate because it doesn't have a mind to think and remember the past or look forward. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, right. I mean, every metaphor falls apart. But, but what, what is the point he's trying to make? To the think? thing it the rose has going for it is that it does not rely solely on the past on words, on other people's ideas, to be itself, to be beautiful, to be a rose. Yeah. Emerson, I can't remember where he says this. It's in another one of his essays. He says that we should compose our own Bibles. Oh, that's good. Is this the point you think he's making? Like, why should we accept the fact that there was only one Bible and it was written a long time ago? Let's produce more. Mm -hmm. One for us. Yeah, and of course, take the good and be influenced by it for good. But um, yeah, don't rely solely on that and don't, you know, give up your greatest asset, which is your mind. Yeah. You like this bit about present, above time. This is so me. (laughs) Man postpones or remembers he does not live in the present. But with reverted eye, laments the past or heedless of the riches that surround him, stands on tiptoe to foresee the future. I love how empowering this is of the present moment. You know, we so often think, well, if I lived in a different place, a different time, you know, if everything was different, maybe I could make something more beautiful or be something else. But he seems to be saying that right now, this is a good as mo- a moment as any, or the best moment. Well, for us, it's better than most moments really have ever. I mean, Shakespeare, can you imagine? It's like he... I'll wait till bubonic plague is yeah. gone. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I'm not living in this flea-infested city. Well, yeah, but even for him, he he could have gotten sick, you know, the next day. So for him, now was the best time to write his masterpieces, too. Yeah, he clearly knew that. Yeah. Life only avails, not the having lived. Yeah, I love that a lot. Sometimes... Um, I catch myself wanting to live, you know, another hundred years. I'm like, what if I could live till I was like 105? (laughs) Some people do. (laughs) And then I'm like, yeah, but, you know, once I reach that age, it's not like having lived 105 years necessarily makes my life better or makes the present moment better. Mm -hmm. Or like Aurelius says, it's not, it doesn't matter how long you live. It's how well you live in the moment because you can only ever live in the moment. Right. Emerson has this wonderfully imagined dialogue between a person and his or her, you know, family, parents. He says, um, say to these people, O father, O mother, O wife, O brother, O friend, I have lived with you after appearances hitherto. Henceforward, I am the truths. I appeal from your customs. I must be myself. I cannot break myself any longer for you or you. If you can love me for what I am, we shall be the happier. If you cannot, I will still seek to deserve that you should. And then this wonderful bit that I love, I've quoted it before on this podcast. 
If a person fails, don't worry. He has not one chance, but a hundred chances. I know. I love that too. Just this idea that we have to choose our purpose in life, and that's the one thing that we can do. Yeah. And if we fail, then you, you basically lost your identity. <laughs> yeah. That's so not true. I'm learning that as I get older. <laughs> Emerson says, prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. Yeah, you really like that because you uh, wrote wow with three exclamation prayer is marks the, next well, to <laughs> Listen, prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. It's incredible. Mm. It's looking at the entire cosmos, the one thing. In, yeah, in an from eternal bird's, perspective. From an eternal bird's eye view and, and learning over a lifetime to be okay with it, contemplating it. Mm. Emerson continues, it is the soliloquy of a beholding and jubilant soul. It is the spirit of God pronouncing his works good. We should kind of go faster, shouldn't we? He, he's down on travel. Why is he down on travel? Oh, Again, there's I, lots of hyperbole here, yeah. which is wonderfully charismatic. And he's doing that thing. I'm sure he's uh, purposeful, uh, purposely going against the grain, you know, of... Yeah, he traveled all over the place. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun, honestly. I know this impulse in myself, subvert things just for the sake of subverting, <laughs> well, but, <laughs> because it surprises people. But not just for that. He is making a serious point he is. that he, he believes is. in, I think. But I think it's a really cool um, move to make in writing because you catch people off guard when you say traveling is a fool's paradise because <laughs> you're like wait but traveling is like yeah. universally <laughs> acknowledged to be a good thing <laughs> we go to europe expecting to be cured of our mortality expecting to be renewed uplifted but and, we we yeah. carry ruins to ruins he says we're we're still the, the same old dumb <laughs> carry ru that is so cool carry ruins to ruins That's like, the best. you carry your own um Idiocy. Carry your own pyramid to the pyramid. <laughs> well, no, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think it's way more pejorative. Well, but um, he's really good at being funny. I mean, or not. But Let me stop myself. Having a huge kernel of truth in there. Or not. You're right, though, because inside of us, we have, I mean, the kingdom of God is within you. That's his whole philosophy. Yeah. So you you are right. You, you, you carry within you something better than the pyramids. Yeah. Yeah, I am right. <laughs> Should I read this or? Well, no, maybe for the sake of time, we've summarized it. But I, I do love when he says, my giant goes with me wherever I go. Meaning? In travel. My giant, whether that means like my troubled soul giant or yeah. my worries giant. It's like, I think we've even mentioned this before in the podcast, that funny New Yorker cartoon, a couple sitting on a beach and one says, oh no, we're still us. So funny. <laughs> That's exactly what I realized every time I travel to some kind of beautiful destination. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a grump. I'm still a grump. Know, it's still a pain. Doing stuff is still such a pain. What does this mean? That which each can do best, none but his maker can teach him. No man yet knows what it is, nor can, till that person has exhibited it. Where is the master who could have taught Shakespeare? Where is the master who could have instructed Franklin or Washington or Bacon or Newton? Every great man is a unique the, the Scipionism of Scipio is precisely that part he could not borrow. Shakespeare will never be made by the study of Shakespeare. Do that which is assigned you, and you cannot hope too much or dare too much. Yeah, I really like that. I think he's right. I'm being a, a kind of snark here in the margin. When he's written, when he writes, where's the master who could have taught Shakespeare? I wrote, well... Homer? 
Homer, Marlowe, <laughs> Ovid, the Bible, Sophocles, Montaigne, Wyatt, Surrey, Chaucer. You know, that question has clear answers. But what is Emerson's point? Right. I think he's saying there's no person that could have taught him to be himself other than himself. Yeah, that you put those into a compost heap called the soul. You put those writers, those influences into yes. a compost bin, and out comes a new type of mush <laughs> called William Shakespeare. Beautiful. It's never existed. You yeah. know, the, soap, the, the, the Scipionism of Scipio is precisely that part he could not borrow. So there is something inside of everyone that can't be borrowed. Which is why one shouldn't be too worried about originality. No, it it's automatic. Yeah, you have your own experience and your own voice to bring. He ends self-reliance with this. A political victory, a rise of rents, the recovery of your sick, or the return of your absent friend, or some other favorable event, raises your spirits, and you think good days are preparing for you. Do not believe it. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Love that. It's extremely comforting. It sounds depressing. Do not believe it. I know, he's doing that thing again. That's that stylistic move. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what is this, do not believe it? Better days are ahead, says the world, and then no, they're not. Why should we say that? Maybe in outside, outside circumstances, better days aren't ahead, actually, because everyone is mortal. Hmm. So actually, they are never ahead, <laughs> in a way. The, the very comforting part about that is that the greatest part of our lives, our minds, ourselves, are, are in charge, or can be in charge if we let them. And it's like Marcus Aurelius says, um, to bear this worthily is good fortune. Yeah, there's emotional stability in, in life cannot be grounded on the external. Exactly. A friend gets better, you get a new job. Oh, you think, this is great. Things are going to be good for me. No, 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 don't think like that. You have to study change, like Aurelius says again, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Emerson. Well, but there's an internal unchangingness. Exactly. So That is always reliable. I mean, potentially. Yes. The kingdom of God is within you. I was going to say, then, of course, as he was getting older, he was aware that he was losing his faculties, mental faculties. Emerson? Mm-hmm. And it was embarrassing to him, but if people asked him how he's doing, he's like, well, <laughs> I'm losing my ability to think, but I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> well, this takes us to compensation, which we're not going to spend nearly as much time on, but I did want to allude to it. Emerson clearly is a kind of Neoplatonist or Bhagavad Gita reading believer in the one universe to rule them all. What would you, You've read Compensation and described it as a kind of beautiful fog, but mm -hmm. what is its, and we could talk, we'll highlight some of our favorite bits from it, but what would you say is its overriding premise or assumption or thesis? That uh, there is, in nature, there is um, always a dualism. There's always an opposite to everything. And it's, and it's that opposite that makes it whole. And that there's always consequences for our actions. We don't have to worry about whether somebody who wrongs us in some horrible way is just going to get away with it. Because in a way, they always, they always pay for it. There, yeah. The, the world is both one but dual. It's quite hard to describe. It's, it's not as um, you were saying earlier that self-reliance gives us a lot of quite stoic, practical, grounded. I mean, 
also not. It's quite hyperbolic and difficult to attain, but it's not quite metaphysical. This is quite a metaphysical essay. Oh, yeah. It's not as easy to, <laughs> to follow any advice here. I described it as a kind of prose poem, which always annoys me when other people do. But it is. it does read mostly like a list of beautiful metaphors. Mm-hmm. If you imagine the one thing, the universe, the cosmos, being itself as this giant yin and yang, mm-hmm. this oneness that is inherently dual, you'll get a sense of what Emerson means. He says, whilst the world is thus dual, so is every one of its parts. The entire system of things gets represented in every particle. So things can't really get separated from the whole. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you say Emerson lost his faculties near the end of his life, but I suspect his, I don't want to say belief, his assumption, his hope was that though the one remains, the many change and pass, you know, that he's not going to disappear per se. What are some what are, what are some of your favorite moments here in this essay? Men seek to be great. They would have offices, wealth, power, and fame. They think that to be great is to possess one side of nature, the sweet, without the other side, the bitter. I really like that. We all want the good things in life, but there's literally no good without the bad. It's all one. So you can't you can't expect to be happy as you desire only the good things because you're constantly going to be heartbroken, constantly going to be disappointed. I mean, it's com- just completely unrealistic. And when it comes to um, painting, for example, I sometimes wonder, you know, when I need a white background. I always paint the background black first and then the white over it because it adds depth and it makes that white somehow more interesting. Mm. And I always wonder how in my life I don't believe in that principle at all. I don't want a black background. I don't want any darkness to complicate the bright. You know what I mean? Mm. But I suspect that it's just like an art. It makes life more beautiful and if not more beautiful it's it is life and if i try to constantly only see the bright it's just going to make me very unhappy and ancient mythology knew this emerson says achilles is not quite invulnerable the sacred waters did not wash the heel by which thetis held him siegfried in the nibelungen is not quite immortal for a leaf fell on his back whilst he was bathing in the dragon's blood and that spot which it covered is mortal. And so it must be. There is a crack in everything God has made. It's absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. He says that in nature nothing can be given. All things are sold. I love that too, because in other words, there's no free lunch. You know, it's a price for everything. I was lovingly teasing you earlier about your intense ability to focus. Yeah. Which I think has helped you write novels and paint and run half marathons. Yeah. I pay a price. <laughs> well, the price is that, you know, you can't hear anything else. I've seen you, I was saying you have this amphibian eyelid set <laughs> that goes down over your eyes and the outside of which is painted like your eyes. It looks like your eyes, but I can tell that you're not seeing me <laughs> because you're in your own world. Uh-huh. And it's extremely frustrating to be snapped out of it. Like with my kids, I purposely paint while they're busy doing something that, and I know they won't disturb me because when they do, it snaps me out of like, it feels like I'm coming from a thousand miles away. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have that. I can't do the same thing for more than 40 minutes without having to do something else. So Emerson is teaching us, I think, that these are six of one and a half dozen of the other. This is the same thing. 
you're getting benefits and paying a price and I'm getting benefits and paying a price, but it's the math is equaling out. Mm. And, you know, I'm getting different benefits, but paying a different price and you're getting different benefits and paying a different price. But mm. the good are befriended even by weakness and defect as no man had ever a point of pride that was not in injurious to him. So no man had ever a defect that was not somewhere made useful to him. Mm. The stag in the fable admired his horns and blamed his feet, but when the hunter came, his feet saved him, and afterwards, caught in a thicket, his horns destroyed him. Every man in his lifetime needs to thank his faults. I love that. There are certain Shakespeare plays where I think, oh, that was too convenient. The marriage was pathetic. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, marriage. come on. This scene was a filler scene. Mm -hmm. This character is unbelievable. But these endear us to him even more. You know, these you were saying about our kids, it's like... Faults and all. We want them faults and all. We That's, do. We want them to be that configuration of traits. Faults, not just in like wrong, I mean, not necessarily wrong actions, but they're, um, they're little imperfections. I mean, yep. I would die if my daughter lost her lisp. <laughs> it makes her about 90% cuter. <laughs> They've been saying interesting for about eight, our, our son. We don't correct him because why? That's the cutest. There can be no cheating. So Emerson claims there can be no cheating. All crimes are paid for. Yes, what is that bit with the glass? He says, commit a crime and the earth is made of glass. Everyone, oh, everyone so will know that you committed a crime. It's like he read Crime and Punishment before Crime and Punishment was written, you know? <laughs> commit a crime and it seems as if a coat of snow fell on the ground, such as reveals in the woods the track of every partridge and fox and squirrel and mole. So you cannot good. recall the spoken word. You cannot wipe out the foot track. You cannot draw up the ladder so as to leave no inlet or clue. Some damning circumstance always transpires. Karma. This is, yeah. you know, he's, again, he's been reading the Bhagavad Gita. We reap what we sow. It might take decades. It might even be retroactive. It might be damage to our reputation, but it's not. But I like that bit about there's a crack in everything that God made. Yeah. I wonder if Leonard Cohen got his, there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in probably my question is i'm fully willing to admit that there's opposites in everything you can't have the good without the bad but how can you be okay with that without how can you celebrate that fact <laughs> without feeling like you're celebrating the darkness like you don't want to go so far as to say i'm really grateful for the darkness because i'm not i'm not grateful for evil i don't know i mean we might need to be grateful for evil. Otherwise, goodness doesn't stand out. This is your this is your painting thing. Like, listen to him quote you here. There is a deeper fact in the soul than compensation, to wit, its own nature. The soul is not a compensation, but a life. The soul is. Under all this running sea of circumstance, whose waters ebb and flow with perfect balance, lies the aboriginal abyss of real being. Essence, or God, is not a relation or a part, but the whole. I love that so much. You know, what is God? It's Krishna right there. It's the thing. Uh, it's <laughs> it's the, the one thing. Um, being is the vast affirmative, excluding negation, self-balanced, and swallowing up all relations, parts, and times within itself. Nature, truth, virtue are the influx from thence. Vice is the absence or departure of the same. Nothing, falsehood, may indeed stand as the great night or shade on which, as a background... The living universe paints itself forth. Oh, wow. But no fact is begotten by it. It cannot work, for it is not. It cannot work any good. It cannot work any harm. It is harm inasmuch as it is worse 
not to be, than to be. We feel defrauded of the retribution due to evil acts, because the criminal adheres to his vice and contumacy, and does not come to a crisis or judgment anywhere in visible nature. There is no stunning confutation of his nonsense before men and angels. Has he therefore outwitted the law? Inasmuch as he carries the malignity and the lie within him, he so far deceases from nature. In some manner there will be a demonstration of the wrong to the understanding also. But should we not see it, this deadly deduction makes square the eternal account. Well, no, I think that that there is an eternal account, and we don't see the math being done, but it's being done. I know this is... Prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. I think that's what it means. Well, I will just close this little chapter before we finish up here by reading what Emerson himself says. So do we put our life into every act. The true doctrine of omnipresence is that God reappears with all his parts in every moss and cobweb. The value of the universe contrives to throw itself into every point. If the good is there, so is the evil. If the affinity, so the repulsion. If the force, so the limitation. Thus is the universe alive. All things are moral. That soul which within us is a sentiment outside of us is a law. We feel its inspiration. Out there in history we can see its fail strength. It is in the world, and the world was made by it. Justice is not postponed. A perfect equity adjusts its balance in all parts of life. I'm almost done. The world looks like a multiplication table or a mathematical equation, which, turn it how you will, balances itself. Take what figure you will, its exact value, nor more nor less, still returns to you. Every secret is told, every crime is punished, every virtue rewarded, every wrong redressed in silence and certainty. What we call retribution is the universal necessity by which the whole appears wherever a part appears. If you see smoke, there must be fire. If you see a hand or a limb, you know that the trunk to which it belongs is there behind. I'll let those words speak for themselves. I want to finish here with this little thing about appropriation, because I love it so much. The heart and soul of all men being one, this bitterness of his and mine ceases. That's quite lovely. If there's one thing, there's no yours or mine, right? So jealousy can end. Mm -hmm. His is mine. I am my brother and my brother is me. If I feel overshadowed and outdone by great neighbors, I can yet love. I can still receive, and he that loveth maketh his own the grandeur he loves. Thereby I make the discovery that my brother is my guardian, acting for me with the friendliest designs, and the estate I so admired and envied is my own. It is the nature of the soul to appropriate all things. This is important, I'll reread it. It is the nature of the soul to appropriate all things. Jesus and Shakespeare are fragments of the soul, and by love I conquer and incorporate them in my own conscious domain. His virtue, is that not mine? His wit, if it cannot be made mine, it is not wit. Well, that's good. It's too good. There's no such thing as appropriation. If you can see it and love it, it is a part of you, and, and by definition cannot be stolen. Not to go back to running, but um, <laughs> but he will. We get it. You're amazing. For some odd reason, um, sometimes it really bothers me when people pass me when I'm running, and I realize that's some base part of me. <laughs> so it's just dumb. But uh, then one day, I, I tried a different approach. I Some people were passing me, and I thought, if we were you know, part of a family and we were trying to outrun some antelope, 
so that we could bring them home for food, then I would be very grateful to my brothers or sisters for being faster than me because they would be helping me. (laughs) I know it sounds dumb, but I bought it at the moment. You know, and he sees his neighbors have something that he doesn't or whatever, or he's envious, then um, he realizes that... It's your victory, too. Yeah. So another human's victory is yours because you're a human too. Humans are capable of beautiful, great things. And the beauty of others is yours. Yeah. Who, for whom else is Shakespeare? It's for me. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. I love that. If it's not your wit, it's... It's not wit. <laughs> right. If it doesn't... So good. If it doesn't relate to you and you don't connect with it, then... We only see what we are. This yeah. is the point. Yeah. We only see what we are. That's why you have to put your humanity into everything you do. You have to trust yourself. We've talked a long time here. We've cast a wide net. What impact has Emerson made on you? He's He has changed my life again and again. Well, I bought a t-shirt. <laughs> so it does, the transformation doesn't get more profound than that. No, it's honestly, not to be cheesy, it has made me probably 60% prouder of being a human. And not proud in a bad way, but I feel um, I feel empowered, and I feel like my my mind is something sacred, and I should prize it. I'm capable of untold greatness. Mm-hmm. Everyone's mind. Everyone's. And the only excuse is fear, which is not nothing. It's not overcomable, you know, in a day. But also, on the flip side, isn't insurmountable. It is surmountable. And not to squander this amazing gift by not thinking or by letting other people do all of the thinking for me. Yeah, and to know, you know, in the compensation essay, like, don't worry, your your beauty will out itself. And the gifts of others are a gift to you. Exactly. And not, they don't take away from anything. Right. I think it's possible he's the fountainhead of everything good in American culture. Did he? Everything. Did he inspire Melville because... Oh, I, everyone, I'm sure. There's a whale and a harpoon in this. Yeah, Melville, Frost, I mean everyone, like I said. <laughs> everything good about America. It's quite an American essay, isn't it? I mean, we, we should shut up. We've been going on too long, but this kind of like... It's the part of America that I really love. Yes, you are Swedish. Swedish family growing up in Germany. Yeah. Quite a uniquely, and I'm from Canada, so as as two outsiders, we can kind of say, I mean, Canada's more like America. But I'll also, actually, you know what? It's, Here we go. I can't shut up. Um, it's okay. They want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> in this way, actually, this is maybe the way in which Canada is the most differentiated from America, because Canadians are stereotypically self, self-deprecating, self-stifling, gentle... We, 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 people pleasers, we don't want to cause a ruckus. No trumpets. <laughs> no trumpets. Uh, no, please don't, you know, everything is fine. No calling attention to ourselves. We just want to get along. Mm-hmm. That's why you think, say sorry so much. Yes, that's why we apologize so much for no reason. Don't think this could have been written by a Canadian because we, we don't have this wonderfully aggressive, um, to use Whitman's word, yop, you know, like, mm. like, <laughs> yeah, we, we are writing the new Bibles. Canadians couldn't, we don't say that. But it's not really patriotic. I mean, it has become a kind of brand of Americanness, but only 
because of Emerson. There's nothing... He's talking to the human race. There's nothing about yeah, I, his ideas that are specifically f- only for Americans. Right. I just don't know if anyone but an American could have articulated these ideas, which are for all humans. Mm. You know, here's this country that just came out of nowhere and is suddenly the bee's knees. Mm-hmm. So it gave this young, this young thinker, this young man... Hey, I'll just write a new Bible, you know? Here's a new constitution. I'll write my own. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And Americans, you know, it's good. There's a good version of that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. There's a bad version, but there really is a good version. It's the good version that I love so much about America. America is really my favorite country. Like, let's just invent new churches. Like, every week, we'll just invent a new one. (laughs) Yeah. Every man can invent his own church. That's Mm -hmm. good. In a way. In a way, yeah. America is still seen as a place of fresh starts and unlimited potential. Mm. Yeah, there is something in the air about let's try everything. (laughs) Everything you need to know about America is in this essay, self-reliance. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. That sounds like a way of like teaching it to a college class. It's like, well, this is an important text in American literary history, but it's a necessary text for every human soul. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say in conclusion. It teaches you how to think, how to live, how to endure, how, how to, to aspire. How to value yourself more. What the soul is for, what the soul is capable of. You're right. They want us to keep going, but we should go. <laughs> One of Ralph Waldo Emerson's most beloved poems is called The Snowstorm. Announced by all the trumpets of the sky, arrives the snow, and driving o'er the fields seems nowhere to alight. The whited air hides hills and woods, the river and the heaven, and veils the farmhouse at the garden's end. The sled and traveler stopped, the courier's feet delayed, all friends shut out. The horsemates sit around the radiant fireplace, enclosed in a tumultuous privacy of storm. Come see the north wind's masonry, out of an unseen quarry evermore furnished with tile. The fierce artificer curves his white bastions with projected roof round every windward stake or tree or door. Speeding the myriad-handed, his wild work so fanciful, so savage, Not cares he for number or proportion. Mockingly on coop or kennel he hangs Perean wreaths. A swan-like form invests the hidden thorn, fills up the farmer's lane from wall to wall, maugre the farmer's size, and at the gate a tapering turret overtops the work. And when his hours are numbered, and the world is all his own, retiring as he were not, leaves when the sun appears, astonished art to mimic, in slow structures, stone by stone, built in an age, the mad wind's nightwork, the frolic architecture of the snow. I hope you enjoyed that chat and that poem. I'm not sure what Claire and I will be reading next or when, But in the meantime, I hope that you keep reading and keep enjoying whatever it is that you read. 